Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we interview philosophers about their new books in aesthetics and ethics, metaphysics and epistemology, social and political philosophy, philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, and many other areas. Today's interview is with Jesse Prinz, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York Graduate Center. His new book, The Conscious Brain, is just out from Oxford University Press. For decades now, philosophers, linguists, psychologists, and neuroscientists have been working to understand the nature of the hard-to-describe but very familiar conscious experiences we have while we're awake. Some have thought consciousness can't be explained scientifically, and others have argued that it will always remain a mystery beyond our epistemic grasp. But most consider some sort of explanation in physical and specifically neural terms to be possible. In this deftly written book, Prince synthesizes scientific data and hypothesis with philosophical theory and insight to argue for what he calls the AIR, or AIR theory, according to which consciousness is attention to intermediate-level sensory representations realized by neural activity, or vector waves, attention is availability to working memory, and availability to working memory is identified with synchronized neural or vector wave activity in the gamma frequency range. Along the way, he provides novel arguments against competitor theories, presents new data that any adequate theory of consciousness must explain, and proposes a mind-body metaphysics that draws on insights from both non-reductive and reductive physicalism. Let's turn to the interview. I'm here with Jesse Prinz, the author of The Conscious Brain, How Attention Engenders Experience. Hello, Jesse. Hi, Carrie. Great to be here. Hi, thanks. Thanks for agreeing to an interview. Um, this is a, a terrific book. It's it's deftly written, as, as usual. Um, it's also empirically synthetic, and, and it's just comprehensive in all kinds of ways and at lots of different levels. Um, and I guess the best way to get 
at the book um, would be to, uh, you know, look at your your background interest, how you came to this book, um, and then get into the particular details of your of your um, uh, theory of consciousness. But um, actually, before we get to that, um, one of the, you know, they, they say that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. And um, in this particular case, I'm just wondering how to judge the cover of the book. Because the the cover itself is is extremely interesting. Um, it's it's a woman who has yellow eyes with um, with uh, no pupils, um, and the um, the uh, the font of the title is in this like amazing sort of retro horror movie type uh, font, um, and it looks instead of like a serious sort of philosophical treatise of, you know, theory of consciousness. It looks more like a, you know, a, a, a Bodice Ripper horror novel. <laughs> so, so I just, if you could just explain a little bit about the cover, which, which you know, you provided the art for it. Um, so could you explain just, you know, what this cover means in terms of what is inside the cover? Yeah. Well, it actually begins with the title because I, uh, oddly enough, in, in choosing the conscious brain as a title, I hadn't even thought about the conscious mind, Dave Chalmers' very seminal book on consciousness. So uh, even though that contrast is, is in some ways obvious, since his book is very philosophical and mine is very biological, I wasn't thinking of the comparison. I just thought it's a book that's data-driven, and the data I'm drawing on is by and large neuroscientific. So the conscious brain seemed like the, the natural title. But as soon as I had that title in hand, it kept suggesting to me these old horror films that really had the ring to me of the name of, of some like the, you know, the, the attack of the killer brain kind of film. Right. Um, so my mental image associated with the conscious brain was always the aesthetic of a vintage horror poster. Yeah. And um, when I floated the idea of doing a cover that gestured to that, uh, my, my editor, Peter Aline was wonderfully uh, supportive to my, to my uh, surprise and delight. And, um, and I executed the painting knowing that it could get vetoed at any time. And one of the ironies is it actually did get vetoed. So the, the first version of the cover was a painting of a woman with her brain exposed. Oh God. So much more literal. (laughs) Um, But of course, you know, it was a woman who looked like she had been the victim of some terrible, uh, unhappiness. I mean, zombie woman or a, a alien invader uh, victim. So I think that the, the combination of her tortured expression and the exposed brain made it look a little bit violent. So the, the design <laughs> studio at Oxford vetoed it. And the, the joke at the time is, is, is that they were vetoing a picture of a woman because her brain was exposed. <laughs> like oh. they didn't want to show a woman with a brain. So that the, you know, there was a kind of running joke that this was really a, a misogynistic veto that the idea of, revealing that women actually had brains would somehow be offensive. <laughs> but uh, they kindly agreed to let me uh, conceal the brain, and the image that resulted was actually derived from, I took uh, the neural pattern of an, of an attention study uh-huh. done, with, uh, done with EEG. So what you see there is actually a red pattern on her forehead, right. quite literally taken from data of attention in the brain. Okay. Uh, so she has an attentive brain, but the, you know, the typography goes with the horror aesthetic. Yes. And I think that the, sorry about the 
the beeping outside, by the way, we're getting some conscious qualia right now. I don't know if you're picking that up. Yes, sir. Um, but that should pass. Um, this is yeah, live from New York. Uh, but the, the cover really was, uh, to me, um, a nice way of saying, look, philosophy is a serious business. We all take ourselves seriously, but it's okay to have a sense of humor, too. It's a very scholarly book, uh, but consciousness is a fun, exciting, to some extent, new and dynamic topic. It's informed by the latest research. So to have something that was a little bit less academic, I thought was okay. Uh, it, I think it definitely works. Um, so could you, uh, to get into the book, um, how did you get to this book? Because um, you, you've been working in a lot of, uh, you, you've drawn on some of your past work here. Um, so how did, how did you, you know, what's your sort of philosophical journey to this particular book? Well, I, I, Really, my first exposure to philosophy of mind was probably through questions about consciousness. I was an undergrad at NYU, and I took philosophy of mind with Tom Nagel. And um, I really, at the time, was not primarily interested in philosophy of mind. I was doing uh, mostly logic and, and a number of other things. And, and Nagel's approach was in some ways frustrating to me because there was a tendency, as you find in a lot of his work, to, to problematize things. So when we would get to questions about consciousness and qualia, uh, it really was always a, a stopping place where he would just say, there seem to be these irreducible features of the mental that we can never adequately explain in physical terms. And at that point, um, the conversation just needs to, to stop. And I, I was so vexed by that, I think, that I really didn't even think philosophy of mind was an area I wanted to pursue. Um, around the same time, maybe a little after that, uh, Dan Dennett's book appeared, and uh, and I learned about it. I think first from a New York Times review of it, which was which kind of brought attention to the chutzpah of the title, "Consciousness Explained," and uh, in some ways drew attention to the fact that Dennett's more biological approach wasn't all that uh, successful in shedding light on these deep mysteries. But still, Dennett's book was a watershed. I mean, for me, it really represented not just a turn in uh, and how to think about consciousness, but but a turn in philosophy, because to see philosophers drawn so heavily on empirical evidence um, was uh, was very inspirational. And while it took me a little while to get back to consciousness, that book loomed in my mind as a model of, of this alternative way, this way of doing philosophy that wasn't about wallowing in, in problems, but trying to really offer uh, richly informed solutions. And in grad school, I, I continued to have a background interest in consciousness. Um, and uh, towards the end of my grad career, uh, Murat Aydede came to um, my graduate program, which was the University of Chicago. And Murat was a, was a fresh off of a, a postdoc. He was a re- recently minted PhD. And he had a good friend, Gavin Gazelderak, who had written a dissertation on consciousness. And Gavin had um, gotten Fred Dretzky interested in the topic. Fred uh, had not been doing consciousness studies before that. And Fred, in his book on consciousness, credits Gavin with making him realize that consciousness is actually an interesting thing to, to work on. And around this time, Fred's book came out, um, Michael Tai's book came out, uh, there was a, a sort of discovery of the work that Brian Lohr was doing on phenomenal concepts. Um, people, of course, were continuing to discuss uh, the, the Dennett work, and, uh, and shortly thereafter, Dave's book came out, 
Um, but Murat taught a consciousness seminar at just the time when uh, these things were, were really in preprint form. So uh, because of his connections, we were able to read a number of these things before they appeared, and, uh, and we read them pretty closely. And I think that um, that really sealed my interest in the topic. And in fact, papers I was writing for, uh, for Murat or writing in, in the context of those readings in the, in the mid-'90s uh, really led to this project. They were the core of the theory. Most of it was already in place at that time. My first publication in philosophy was on consciousness. And I think after about a dozen sort of more publications on consciousness, I realized that absolutely no one was reading them. So I'd say sometimes have a conversation with somebody working in consciousness studies, and they would be surprised to discover that I worked on consciousness. And I'd, I'd published a dozen papers on consciousness, and they'd say, where? And I'd say, well, in the main consciousness journals, where else? So it wasn't as if these things were hidden from view, but, but I do think um, books have a way of reaching people that articles don't. And um, I had thought about the topic from so many different angles that it really was a book book length project at that point. There were enough different things to say that I thought I should bring this all together, expand on and and present it in that form. So one of the first questions that, that has to be asked in this, this area of the, of the philosophical universe is, is what you mean by consciousness. I mean, you know, part of the, uh, part of the issue is always, you know, how are we going to talk about it? And people introduce different labels, you know, qualia, of course, phenomenal character, uh, you know, access consciousness, which you also discussed blocks notion, what it's like, of course, Tom Nagel. Um, and so you get a lot of different uh, labels being lofted about. Um, and so I think probably the best way to start um, is to is for you to explain w- how you use these terms and what, what you mean. Yeah, I think obviously it's tricky. The, this is the, the starting place for a lot of discussion in the area. I've tended to like to think of consciousness as experience. And some people like Uriah Kriegel, I just offer that as a synonym and, and move on and continue to talk about experience. Um, but, you know, that's swapping synonyms for synonyms. And I think um, there's, there's something to the idea that consciousness uh, can't be defined. In fact, it's precisely its resistance to definition that uh, contributes to skepticism about various kinds of physical or functional theories of consciousness. So the people try to define it by pointing in some way. And I, I think a, probably a version of that is right. Um, I don't say this in the book, but one thing that's occurred to me is in a way consciousness is the obvious thing. It's all we know. Mm-hmm. And we uh, look at the history of philosophy and we see that the unconscious is a fairly recent discovery. That's something that people weren't aware of. And that's because uh, the, the conscious mind is, those, is the aspects of the mind that are given to us, the ones that are present to us, the ones that we know directly from the inside, as it were. Uh, so one, one way to just define consciousness is to say... Um, in any task of this kind, you're trying to, to uh, do a sorting where you have two bins, one for the category you're interested in and one for everything else. And with respect to consciousness, we could say the conscious mind is the aspects of the mind we know mm-hmm. uh, from, uh, from within. And the unconscious mind uh, includes all those aspects of the mind that we need to be told about uh, from the third person that need to be discovered that aren't uh, available to us in some way, through uh, direct experience. Uh, so I think as a, as a first cut, that's, that's kind of useful. Um, 
The other thing is I would, I would say, and this really follows on the heels of people like David Rosenthal, we should in consciousness studies distinguish questions about the qualitative character of experience and questions about how they, they become conscious. And I do think these are intimately related, maybe more intimately related than, um, than David Rosenthal does. But, but I, I think there's one question, which is what distinguishes two conscious states from another? And another question, how do all conscious states, regardless of what they're like, uh, become conscious? Mm-hmm. And I think that division of labor helps us see that there, are, there may be two things to define. And um, the, that very rough way of doing the sort is maybe a definition of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Consciousness can be defined as the, the aspects of the mental we know about um, without reliance on third-person methods. And then qualia, which become more difficult to, to define, could be characterized in a way that's parasitic on that first definition. Say, of those things we know about first personally, mm-hmm. um, what distinguishes any any pair of them that are different? And a theory of qualia will be a theory of those distinctions. Okay. So um, your your theory that AIR or AIR, do you, do you call it AIR or AIR? I, I call it AIR. Um, I, I, it's unfortunate because with, with David Rosenthal as a colleague, um, uh, Dave Chalmers pointed out that now our department can be air. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess that was, that was, you know, yeah, that was obvious. Um, but, uh, okay. So your, your half of the hot air is, is the air part. And, um, the air theory, of course, uh, involves the idea of attention, of intermediate level representations, and then there's this what what is not included in the uh, um, in the AIR is the uh, the relationship between um, the intermediate level representations uh, as being realized by a certain type of neural activity, and that when this neural activity um, occurs in a particular way, it's synchronized in a, in a particular frequency, um, that's when you have a conscious experience. Um, so maybe you could start us off by saying a little bit about each of the three, I guess I've identified, three parts of the theory. Absolutely. I, so the first thing uh, for me was really the levels. And I think that um, here, the, the clear hero of, of my story is Ray Jackendoff. And I was extremely interested in theories of vision uh, before I started working in earnest on consciousness. I was, I was, at the time, primarily working on perceptual foundations of cognition. And uh, people like David Marr loomed large as uh, pioneers in, in vision uh, science. And in 1987, uh, before I was thinking about these issues seriously, uh, Ray Jackendorf wrote a book called Consciousness in the Computational Mind. And Jackendorf's insight was just that if we begin with something like Mars theory of vision, which has a three-stage hierarchy, we can ask a question, where in that hierarchy does consciousness arise? So if you think about any perceptual system as having the task of going from very local or discrete sensory receptors all the way up to representations that can be invariant enough to recognize objects across transformations in space, we immediately get this picture on which there's a three-part hierarchy. You have a beginning stage at which you still just have the little discrete bits. So for vision, you take the retina, which is basically a grid of photoreceptive cells, and 
you project it onto neocortex and you have early vision and early vision is just giving you these, uh, these little edges, little bits of color, but hasn't yet connected the dots as it were. And then to, to make progress on this, to, to discover the structure of the external world, the dots need to get connected. So you need a second stage where all these little dots, all the edges uh, become coherent holes and figure and, and background are separated. Three-dimensional depth is added textures uh, and coherent object parts all take on form. It's possible we can imagine a creature that got by with just that level of representation, because at that point we're seeing a world of objects, of concrete things located in space. But it turns out that that the senses really benefit from abstracting uh, away from some of the details that you get at that level of representation to a higher level of representation that would be invariant across transformations in space. So if you're, if you're looking at a, an object in front of you uh, and you simply change your viewpoint slightly, maybe the object moves or you move, you need to be able to keep track of the fact that it's the same object you're viewing. And if you see an object on one occasion and then on another occasion from a different vantage point, you need to be able to recognize that they're, they're tokens of the same type. So vision and all the senses seem to extrapolate a um, uh, abstract representation that is going to exclude a lot of these very specific features of vantage point and give uh, a rise to a kind of structural description that tells you what the object is like intrinsically independent of how it's being viewed. So that was Mars theory and lots of successor theories, including theories derived from neuroscience have had that basic organization. Jack and Dahl says, if you look at this picture and ask what is consciousness like, the answer is that it's in the middle. It's that second stage of representation. We don't experience a world of little discrete edges. We experience a world of coherent bounded objects. Mm-hmm. And we don't experience a world that abstracts away from vantage point. If you look out at an object, you always see it from a particular point of view. And so the first part of the theory is really an effort to take Jack and Dobbs' insight and say that it's consistent with and, in fact, strongly supported by contemporary neuroscience. So Jack and Dolph's book doesn't even mention the brain. What I try to do is walk through all kinds of evidence from neuroimaging to single cell recording to deficit work and try and show that even though there are many, many visual areas, they can be organized into a three-part hierarchy. And the, uh, the intermediate level within that hierarchy is privileged vis-a-vis consciousness. Uh, so evidence includes things like the mid-level cells carry the, the kind of information people report experiencing the mid-level cells correlate in time with conscious experience and destruction of mid-level cells uh, impairs or eliminates consciousness, uh, whereas destruction of other levels um, uh, does not. So it's uh, really an endorsement of, a, of an extant view, Jack and Dolph's view, um, that constitutes the first part of the theory. And the, uh, yeah, let yeah. me just, before we um, get to the availability and... and um, so a lot of, I mean, one of one of the things that you do do in the book, um, and you you do mention this at the end, is that it does rest a lot on on vision science, as as your explanation has just just shown. And and for vision science, the intermediate level, you know, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, we we can kind of understand that from Mar and and other people. Um, but you 
one of the claims that you make is that this intermediate level of representation, that, that sensory representations are, are all the kinds of experiences, you know, conscious experiences that we have. Um, and um, could you explain that? I mean, in particular, so for example, you know, thoughts, you know, thoughts that don't seem to have any sort of sensory image, um, uh, you know, present um, you know, thoughts about numbers or about the future, or, um, you know, more cognitive states other than perceptual states, you know. So the I guess the question is when you, I mean, first of all, how do you extend uh, the claim that it's, it's the intermediate level to other um, aspects of, of other kinds of conscious states where it, that idea of an intermediate level doesn't seem to naturally fall out? Um, and then... And then also, um, to some extent, is there any worry that depending heavily on, on vision science, on, you know, on, on the perception end of the mind, um, might in a sense have skewed your, your data set in terms of, you know, where you're drawing the, the neuroscience from to support the theory? Good, yeah. Uh, obviously, the, the topic of cognitive phenomenology, phenomenology of thought, has uh, finally um, gotten tension, and, and it's long overdue. So I think that really is one of the exciting areas of growth in consciousness studies. I think the court is still out there. Um, in a certain way, my task with respect to cognition is a bit uh, easier given some background assumptions. Um, I'm a concept empiricist. So for me, a sharp divide between concepts and, uh, and perception, between cognition and perception, uh, is already ruled out from the, from the get-go. So uh, for me, when, when asked, can you have cognitive phenomenology, I want to say, well, sure, because cognition is couched in a perceptual code. Therefore, to the extent we can be conscious of perception, we can be conscious of perceptual states, mental images, for instance, that are serving a cognitive um, function. And I think it's, it's useful uh, to think about this a little bit in evolutionary terms if we were nonverbal animals, I mean, if we were if we were creatures that just got by the way we might expect um, other mammals to get by, uh, this this worry about cognitive phenomenology sort of wouldn't arise. It would be very natural to think that the mind is a it's a kind of perception machine. It's this input output system that perceives the external world and then uses those perceptions to to plan and make decisions about what to do next. And the idea that the mental life of the conscious mental life of a non-human mammal is exhausted by perceptual states seems uh, seems almost like the default position. It would, mm-hmm. it would be the exceptional, the, the position that would require argument to show that there's a cognitive component to an animal's life that extends beyond perceptual representation. And I, I think an interesting possibility that's, that's suggested by consciousness studies is that if you look at the kinds of cognition that seem to outstrip perception in us, uh, they, they seem to be verbally mediated. So when you get into very abstract domains and you ask how do people conceptualize these domains, like maybe topics that come up in philosophy, independent of the images we form, um, a natural answer is that these are linguistically mediated. If you try to think about some very abstruse problem in, in analytic metaphysics, independent of language, it would be it would be very difficult, maybe, maybe impossible. So a suggestion now becomes that 
mammals are these perception machines. We're basically input-output machines that are designed to, to behave in response to what we perceive. And as evolution advances, we get a bit fancier, and we can start to store perceptual information in order to plan and make decisions about actions that are informed by past experience. So we can now use perceptual information offline in the form of mental imagery. And consciousness might be important for that. So if you think about the role of consciousness in in deliberation, there's something about this, this kind of pause button where instead of immediately responding to the visual world or the sensory world, we, we stop and utilize or, or in some way executively manipulate information, that looks like something consciousness might um, be implicated in. But I think when we get to human cognition, there's this other thing that happens. And um, you can think of it as an invention. Um, language is this tool that we create somehow at some point in our, in our past. And this tool is successful for two reasons. And one reason is that language has this wonderful feature of uh, being able to represent things at any level of abstraction in precisely the same way. So a word for a concrete object like apple is no more complex than a word for, for a complex, uh, very, very abstract property uh, like infinity. And I think once you get a system that has that kind of representational economy, it's extremely powerful for cognition. But language is another feature that we're not often um, tuned to, which is that it's actually perceivable. Language is just a string of sounds or gestures. It's a, it's a set of arbitrary marks that we can, in some way, manipulate in our minds the same way we would manipulate images of very concrete things. So the same way you might form a mental image of an apple and rotate it, you can form a mental image of the word apple, an auditory image. And what language does because of its imageability is it makes the most abstract domains like mathematics, to use the infinity example, as imageable as the most concrete domains. So language greatly extends our cognitive abilities by turning the most abstract domains into something that is concrete. But if you're working against that background, I think it's really plausible to think of language and to think of cognition in general as these perceptual items. And once you think of them as perceptual items, a theory of consciousness that focuses on perception uh, no longer looks to be at odds with the idea of cognitive phenomenology. So in the book, I don't spend a lot of time trying to argue for this empiricist perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I want a more theory-neutral defense of the view that there's no cognitive right. phenomenology above and beyond perception. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of stepping back from, from the, the more specific constraints of the book, I think it, it really is plausible both phenomenologically, but also thinking about the nature of, of thought and the evolution of minds, to take cognition as a, just a special use of our perceptual capacities. So, so on this language, and then we'll go back to the, the main theory, language as we speak it or think it um, would, be in a, would be intermediate. Yes, exactly. So this is obviously a place where some pressure could be put on the theory, Jackendorf is a psycholinguist, and when he advanced the intermediate-level hypothesis, one of his core examples uh, was language. And he said, look, we have all of these theories about what's going on in terms of syntactic trees and, and, and even uh, phonemic representations that involve a fair amount of structure. We really don't have conscious access to those local details like the phonemes 
for those very uh, invariant abstract details like the syntactic trees. What we're aware of is just strings of speech sounds. And I think that if you, if you are convinced by the kinds of jack-and-off arguments, the idea that awareness of language is at the intermediate level uh, becomes very plausible. Okay, so um, that's the IR part of the air. Yes. Um, and now we, now we get to the, the attention, that's part two. Good. So in, in reading Jack and Duff, I was, um, I was very quickly convinced, and uh, I thought the theory was right but missing something. And what it was missing is an account of when these intermediate-level representations become conscious. And the reason why you need that is simple. We, we know there's such a thing as unconscious perception. So as soon as you grant that we can perceive things subliminally, you've granted that there can be representations throughout the sensory hierarchies, including the intermediate level areas, without consciousness. So the question then becomes, what makes the difference between an intermediate level representation becoming conscious and not being conscious? And I really here was, uh, again, trying to very slavishly follow what I took to be the most robust lessons of the empirical literature, and around the time that I was very um, concerned with these questions, um, I began reading about de- deficits in consciousness. Um, and I was particularly interested in deficits where there were signs of residual visual processing in the absence of consciousness. And I wanted to know what was going on there. And the disorder that impressed me as most illuminating uh, was visual neglect. Because in neglect, people really robustly um, insist that they're not conscious of things on the left side, but nevertheless show evidence of, as some of them do anyway, evidence of processing information on the left side. And um, neglect had always been understood as a, a def- deficit in attention, an attention disorder. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that I was intrigued that, that maybe this was the key to consciousness. The difference between a perceptual representation at the mid-level being conscious and not was the availability of attention to modulate it. And um, people like um, Bissiak were writing on this, and in fact, Bissiak was endorsing an intermediate-level theory as well, um, but n- a number of other authors that implicated uh, attention. So if you read the first uh, influential paper by Christoph uh, Koch and, and Francis Crick, uh, they, they thought attention might be a key here as well. And in the late 90s, a research program on inattentional blindness occurred, which tried to show that even in healthy people, if you remove attention, consciousness seems to go with it. Um, So it was against the background of of some patient work, some some very theoretical models, and some experimental work with healthy individuals that I I began to think attention is, is a good candidate. And... Inattentional blindness was interesting because it showed distract somebody away, give them a demanding task uh, that consumes a lot of attention, and then present a stimulus right in clear view, and they will not see it. Uh, It turns out that this was just one of many such demonstrations. So there were phenomena like attentional blink, where uh, presenting stimuli in rapid succession seems to lead to uh, a lack of consciousness of the second stimulus. Uh, Even phenomena like masking had, it turned out, um, implicated attention. So people, people had thought about backwards masking as situations where one stimulus is presented followed by another that sort of erases or covers that first stimulus, presenting, preventing it from becoming conscious. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that if the second stimulus, if the mask, 
doesn't cover the first, but it's just in the surrounding area, the masking is just as effective. So people uh, like Ensign and Diwalla, who were looking at this, concluded that actually masking is an intentional phenomenon. What's happening is not that the second stimulus erases the first, the trace of the first might still be in the visual system, but it, it removes attention from the first and doesn't give enough time to the nervous system to intentionally modulate the initial stimulus because the mask uh, becomes a, a, a lure for attention it's in its own right. So cobbling all these different um, experimental paradigms together, I concluded along with many other authors that attention marks the difference between conscious and unconscious states. And the, the next task for me in terms of developing this idea was to figure out exactly what attention is. And here I was, again, really trying to look empirically, and attention uh, is a bit of a mess. So people were using the term to refer to a lot of very different kinds of uh, cognitive tasks. So they used attention to refer to pop-out paradigms where one stimulus is salient against a background of contrasting stimuli. They used attention to refer to visual search when people are looking for a specific item. They use attention uh, to refer to states of vigilance where you're, you're watching something, states of tracking where you, where you follow an object as it moves through space. And all of these different things look to be fundamentally different. But what I came to realize, and, and relying very much on psychologists in the area, is that there is a common denominator here. And the common denominator is that in each of these cases, attention seems to make information in the sensory pathways available to working memory. Attention is a kind of doorway that opens up to the possibility of temporary storage. So the things we're attending to in our sensory surround are the things that we can then hold in memory, think about, manipulate in our minds. Uh, the things that we're not attending to are not candidates for that. Uh, so, for example, in a lovely, uh, very clever, simple, simple uh, old paper, um, uh, uh, some, some researchers, um, including... Um, uh, Irving Rock, who became a central figure in the inattentional blindness work, presented participants with a stimulus that has two oddly shaped kind of curvilinear figures superimposed on top of each other. So people are looking directly at two objects, but they're asked to attend to one of those two objects, not the other. And afterwards, they're given a memory task where they're given an array of objects, and the array includes both the one they were attending to and the one they weren't attending to. Yeah, this is what, in your book, too. This is in the book. And what you find, is just such a simple study, it's a beautiful design because both stimuli are in the same region of visual fields. You can't look at one without looking at the other. But in the memory test, people robustly remember the one they've attended to, but uh, are absolutely hopeless at remembering the one they weren't attending to. So what this suggests to me is that the very act of attending is the difference maker with respect to whether something can get into memory or not. And it was against that kind of um, research paradigm that I thought we could define attention now uh, in terms of its functional role. And its functional role is, is some change that allows sensory information to gain access to working memory. So attention is availability. Okay, so but you also draw a very important distinction at, at, at this point of the book between... Um, I guess, availability to working memory and encoding in working memory. Um, and I thought that was a very crucial move that you made in the theory. So could you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is really a move that was um, 
driven by the fact that in you in the memory literature you have um, so much work on encoding, on storage, on, on recall, and very little attention is paid to the uh, the situations where something could get into memory and doesn't doesn't get there. But that that possibility presented itself, and I was really stumped at first. I didn't know does consciousness actually require the encoding. Or uh, does it require mere candidacy for encoding? And this really mattered a lot because around this time period, a debate emerged about whether frontal cortex was involved in consciousness. And uh, there were people who were trying to locate consciousness early in the visual system, denying the importance of frontal cortex. And others, including uh, Crick and, and Koch in their, in their later collaborations, who insisted that frontal cortex was, was involved. And I wanted to know the answer. And um, I, I think that there's an immediate obstacle to answering this question, which is that if you don't get encoding mm-hmm. in working memory, you don't get reportability. It's in really working memory that's doing all the work when it comes to explicitly reporting that a stimulus has been seen. So it's almost impossible, it would seem, to test for the existence of consciousness in the absence of working memory encoding. So uh, I, I, at this point, was sort of stuck with the possibility that there might be working memory, um, there might be conscious states that are not in working memory, but merely available to working memory, but could never be confirmed or tested. Mm-hmm. And I turned a corner on this question uh, when, I, when I reflected on two phenomena. And one of them has to do with the richness of experience. And if you look at the research on what gets encoded in working memory, it looks like the grain of resolution, the representational detail that's preserved, is actually much less rich than the detail we have in conscious experience. So it's as if that very act of encoding is also a a kind of streamlining filter that loses information and preserves only a coarse record of what came before. And to that extent, you can immediately see that the working memory encodings are not even in the right grain. They're not the right kinds of representations to account for what we experience consciously. So that that already tipped me off that maybe these encodings aren't crucial. The real action, the representations that seem to be in consciousness are the, are the sensory ones. The encodings seem to be of another sort. But the other thing that really convinced me on this was change blindness. So lots have been written about change blindness, and I thought that the, for me, for the phenomenology of change blindness, the really obvious lesson of change blindness is that the stimuli that are presented are very, very consciously experienced. Every detail of them is consciously experienced. Some change blindness um, stimuli, uh, so these, these are these cases where you see one picture uh, followed by another, and there, there's just something that's changed between the two and you can't detect it. Some of these stimuli are extremely frustrating because you can stare at them for, for very long periods of time, sometimes hours without seeing this, the change. So I started looking at these cases, and I look at them studiously, trying to really find out what's changing. And I noticed that when I did this, I attended to absolutely every corner, every pixel of the picture. And I experienced every pixel of the picture. The the whole image was vivid to me. I could experience all of it and still not detect the change. So that suggests that memory is not essential to experience. Change blindness itself can be defined as a memory phenomenon. It's a question of keeping track of how a stimulus is at time one and then comparing it to the stimulus at time two. 
And if you haven't retained stimulus at time one, then your comparison will fail. Or if you've retained only a course record of stimulus at time one, you might miss out on, on the detail that's changed at time two. So the whole phenomenon of change blindness suggests the possibility of experiencing an image or a stimulus in every detail, attending to it in every detail, but not retaining it in memory. And that cleaves a, a, a divide between experience on the one hand and encoding on the other. In each case, when you experience something, you are attending to it. In the change blindness case, you're doing this almost studiously. Um, and in each act of attention, we have independent reason to believe there is some availability to memory. But the fact that change blindness occurs this way suggests that mere availability guarantees experience, but it doesn't guarantee encoding. So I finally ended up with the conclusion that consciousness arises when modulation of attention makes information available to working memory, but doesn't actually require encoding in working memory. And then this uh, this availability, in turn, you um, this is where you you bring in the the neural part directly, the the biological part, um, where you um, associate or identify. I, I mean, um, uh, when the uh, neural realizers of the intermediate representations, the the vector waves, as you put it, uh, fire within the gamma frequency. Um, so maybe you could say a word about that final aspect of the theory. Yeah, absolutely. So I, this is a totally functional description so far. Consciousness arises right. mid-level. It involves availability to working memory. Um, I was interested in what the underlying neural correlates are. We tend to be sort of phrenological about the brain because we, we rely so much on fMRI. So we see a, an area lighting up. <laughs> that's to us the neuroscience <laughs> but of course that's not the neuroscience neuroscience you know brains don't work at the level of areas they work at in cellular population so it would be uh, good i thought to know what's going on when we attend at the cellular level and one really interesting thing for me about that exercise is when people have posited neural correlates they haven't always thought about what what those neural correlates do and i i have a very mechanistic approach to the mind brain so I really was trying to think about what neural correlates could play the relevant functional role. So having arrived at a view about what consciousness does functionally, it makes information available to work memory, I got interested in what neural change could play that role. And it turns out that in the attention literature, uh, there, there are a number of theories of this, but one theory um, was uh, that gamma oscillations, that synchronized neural firings uh, within a certain range of frequency, um, from about 30 hertz uh, upward, um, is uh, a correlative attention. And, and that was really exciting to me because when I heard gamma, I thought, wow, this rings a bell because in the early 1990s, people had been positing gamma as the basis of consciousness, the neural correlative consciousness. And back then I was absolutely certain that that view was false. I, I didn't believe it for a minute. And, uh, and the main reason is I was convinced by some empirical refutations that had been published at the time. And just to just briefly rewind on that, the reason why gamma was proposed had to do with a, a premise that I think turned out to be false. And the premise was that uh, consciousness requires binding of information together, feature binding. Right. And then the next premise was that gamma is the mechanism by which features are bound together. And I, I came to believe that both of these premises are false, that there can be 
bound information outside of consciousness, like if you unconsciously perceive a word in a mass priming study. There can be unbound information in consciousness. So people with various kinds of associative agnosias sometimes experience the world as unbound. And likewise, gamma, uh, various studies of cell recordings uh, suggested, wasn't particularly strongly associated with binding. So both premises that were crucial to the gamma theory of consciousness were false. But here gamma appeared again. But now gamma wasn't doing binding. It was doing attention. And it was a perfect candidate for attention because if you think about gamma, it's, it's, you can think about it as a way of creating signal in a noisy system. So all these cells are firing separately. But when you get a bunch of cells firing in synchrony, they are in a very good position to communicate with other parts of the brain. So a gamma process, or specifically a synchrony process, seemed like a perfect candidate for implementing this theory of attention according to which attention is availability. By firing together, cells become much more available for long-distance communication. And there were correlational studies now suggesting gamma comes with attention, so all the pieces suddenly fell into place. So um, uh, one of the things that you've just described is, is in, in fact, a case of uh, what you later in the book um, actually put forward as a, as a particular new uh, mind-body theory or metaphysical position, which you call uh, neurofunctionalism. Um, and that theory you put forward as a you know, neither reductive nor non-reductive view of physicalism, where you kind of take um, some insights both from the functionalists um, and from the reductive uh, reductive physicalists to sort of formulate a, a multi-level theory. Um, and, and in fact, your theory of consciousness is such a, is such a theory. Um, could you... Um, explain the relationship of neurofunctionalism to the um, you know other standard views in the, in the literature. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we really all in our philosophy of mind textbooks were taught that there were two materialist theories of the mind, and one was functionalism, and the other was some kind of psychophysical identity theory, and we had to choose between them. And I think a number of people, you among them, uh, started thinking that maybe this isn't such a um, a good dichotomy, that there may be uh, positions in between these. And if you look at the core arguments for each of these these views, uh, they're, they're really problematic. So I think if you think about the literature on functionalism, functionalists characteristically tried to argue against identity theory by developing these very elaborate thought experiments that involve, thing, that involve pumping intuitions about whether the nation of China would instantiate a qualitative state if everybody started talking to each other through walkie-talkies or would a Martian with a very different nervous system um, have consciousness where the intuition was supposed to be? Of course they would. Uh, so in the, in the China case, the intuition is, of course they wouldn't. And these two things are supposed to, to um, sort of cut, cut a lot of ice in deciding uh, which metaphysics of mind is right. So nation of, nation of China was designed to show that, imp- that the, the stuff that is used to make up the mind, the structure, uh, matters. And the Martian thought experiments were designed to show that no structure doesn't matter. It's the functional role that matters. So the use of thought experiments in this domain had led to kind of conflicting conclusions. But I think when you step back and ask, 
why should we trust our intuitions about whether the nation of China instantiates qualia or whether Martians have qualia? It immediately becomes obvious that we, sh- we shouldn't. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why our intuition should be a reliable guide uh, to these questions that have to do with unusual forms of implementation. Um, so uh, we, we kind of f- found ourselves in this position in terms of theory construction where the two, the two major views, psychophysical identity theory and, uh, and functionalism, were, uh, were under-supported by the methods that philosophers were using. And I think a much more um, straightforward method for trying to figure out whether functionalism is true or physicalism is true is uh, the kind of method that's used in science quite pervasively, which is a difference maker method. Which, which of these things make a, makes a difference? Can you manipulate the functional level and still have consciousness? Can you manipulate the physical level, some level described in the language of neuroscience, uh, and leave consciousness intact? And, um, and settle the answer empirically. And I think uh, once you take on that as your methodology, a striking thing happens. You start to realize that the, the felt urgency about picking the right level uh, simply dissipates. And the possibility that multiple levels matter uh, presents itself. So in my own uh, groping towards a theory, I had been looking at psychological evidence that sh- suggested that a, a certain kinds of functional role was important to consciousness. I'd been looking at neuroscientific evidence at a cellular level, suggesting there were particular neural processes that were implicated in consciousness. And these different methodologies were suggesting that both levels might, might be important. Um, another thing that was happening in, in philosophical theory that was relevant to, to this, I think, um, emerging sea change is uh, in philosophy of science, there had been the emergence of the, the mechanistic turn of a, of a shift towards theories of explanation that said what we really try and do in understanding a complex system is decompose it into its parts, and then those parts decompose further and further into smaller parts. And the notion of mechanism as a set of nested structures that implement increasingly complex structures that ultimately produce um, observable uh, behavior or activity uh, fit so nicely with this multi-level picture. Because in addition to just the very, um, I think one might say, inert um, a correlational method where you show, okay, there are things that make a difference at the functional level, things that make a difference at the physical level, the me- mechanistic story shows that there's also a deeper sense in which these levels are not independent, right. which is that they're related through mechanistic relations. So not only is the sort of sense that we need to choose between the functional and physical uh, not required, but a mechanistic perspective suggests that it's the very nature of these lower physical levels that they just implement higher and higher physical levels, levels that could ultimately be characterized in psychological terms familiar to the functionalist research tradition. So consciousness, I thought, like everything else uh, that we're interested in, is a kind of mechanism. It's a mechanism that can be described at different levels. The levels are not arbitrarily related. One implements the other. And, uh, and both uh, levels or many levels are, are going to turn out to be important. And in the book, I, I call this neurofunctionalism, and I define neurofunctionalism as the view that uh, the, the identity conditions for uh, the phenomenon in question, uh, in this case conscious experience, uh, reside at, uh, at both a, a level described in the language of neuroscience 
and a level that could be characterized as functional, described in the language of psychology. Okay, so um, we, I, w- another thing that you had uh, that you mentioned earlier was um, uh, this idea of of uh, binding, and in the book you also uh, well, there's two different questions related to the idea of binding. Um, one is the idea of the unity of consciousness, um, and then there's this this other idea that the self. Right, which sometimes the 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 idea that there's a phenomenal self and that this self is essential to the unity of consciousness that explains it or not. I mean, depending on your position, on one's position. Um, and so, one of the uh, one of the interesting uh, things that you argue against here is this idea of a phenomenal um, self um, that is always represented in consciousness. And and I think you think it's never represented, right? Um, so could you explain that, that view of the self and its relationship to, to your um, air theory? Absolutely. And I, this, this also harks back a little bit because I, before doing philosophy of mind, was interested in philosophy of language. And one of the topics that had interested me briefly in, in my student days was, um, was Wittgenstein on uh, the first person. And Anscombe also uh, wrote an important paper on the first person. And a distinction that emerges in that literature is uh, between a use of the word I that is subjective uh, and another use that's objective. So um, if I say something like um, I need to shave or something uh, referring to my body, the I there is treating the self as a kind of object. It's, a, it's an item that gets experienced and, and manipulated. It's not the agent that does the experiencing um, or does the manipulating. And uh, when I say something like I'm in pain, or uh, I want to spend the afternoon reading in the park, the I there uh, is an I as subject. It's an expression that refers to the, the agent who is supposed to be the one doing, doing activities and, and uh, subject to the experiences. Uh, and I think that the question I was interested in this chapter is whether there is such a thing as a phenomenal I in that subjective sense. So, they take the kind of Cartesian formulation of, of the cogito and say, I am thinking or I am experiencing. Uh, clearly, there is a phenomenology to the thought or to the experience. But is there also a phenomenology to the I, the haver of that thought or experience? And, um, and that I thought I, it was a question I really didn't have an antecedent answer to. I just wanted to know. And I had been focusing on perceptual theories of consciousness. So um, I wanted to know, is the I... Uh, in consciousness at all, and if so, is it something that can be reducible to perception, as some people have argued? Is it, for instance, an experience of control of one's body, or is the eye something above and beyond perception, a phenomenal quality that uh, that outstrips perceptual content? And I came to think that it's neither of these things and that it, it doesn't exist. Uh, so the skepticism about the eye is really um, it's, it's kind of the output of a failed search. You look in the content of experience, and this was, this was Hume's point in a way, right. and you don't see anything above and beyond all those sensory states, the, the ongoing verbal narrative describing those states uh, that could be called the I. There's nothing above and beyond uh, the, the flow, the contents of experience that looks like the subject. And even searching the classic philosophical literature, you see someone like Kant, talking about a transcendental unity of apperception, 
but it doesn't look like an item in experience for Kant. It looks more like the, the very unity of experience. Um, you, you look for evidence in Descartes, and uh, while there's a kind of naive reading of him that suggests the subject is present, that made him very vulnerable to um, certain kind of ridicule from critics uh, like, like Lichtenberg, I think what you what you really see there is there's there's also a kind of failure to 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 commit to the existence of anything like a like a phenomenal eye. So I I think in the end of this exercise, um, uh, it's always hard to to prove a, a negation. But in the end of this exercise, I was convinced that there was nothing left to explain with respect to phenomenology once we'd given an account of perceptual phenomenology. And any impression that there's an eye above and beyond experience uh, could be could be explained away. Hmm. So let me uh, we're we're close to running out of time, and I, I did I wanted to discuss your um, sort of uh, new response to the uh, Jackson's knowledge argument with with Mary in the black and white room. But I'd, I'd actually I'd rather um, ask about uh, an issue that occurred to me as I was reading. Um, uh, what implications your theory has for consciousness in in other animals? Um, uh, you know, given that um, you know, if you if you are uh, uh, explaining consciousness um, in a way that is very closely um, related to uh, to perception, um, well, you know, other animals have all those capacities, right? There's nothing. Um, uh, there's nothing that 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 we have that they don't have in terms of perceptual capacities, um, and and that suggests that consciousness um, extends farther down the phylum than than you know than many people are willing to um, to agree, at least intuitively. Of course, Descartes cut it off right away, but um, even nowadays, uh, you know, people say, well, you know, shrimp are not conscious and uh, you know, worms are not conscious, or insects, and so forth. Um, how do you see your theory as affecting um, that debate about the consciousness uh, of animals? I, it's, I think it's a really, really interesting debate, and I was going to have a chapter on it when I when I first put together a book proposal. I actually had a planned chapter. Um, on animal consciousness. And in researching that chapter, I, I really read deeply into that literature. Um, and the strategy was, predictably, let me take this independently motivated theory of human consciousness and just see what creatures satisfy it. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up not including the, the chapter. Um, I, I did in part because some of the relevant science was still so undeveloped. So we really end up with a lot of studies suggesting things like if you look at a, say, squid and ask, does it have attention or a fruit fly, you'll see papers where they deliver a positive answer, yes. But then you actually look at what the papers report, and they report that the fruit fly or the squid uh, change their orientation when right. this of importance. And a central um, uh, theoretical division in the book that, that does a fair amount of work for me is the distinction between orientation and attention. So, for instance, there's now a big cottage industry of trying to prove that attention and consciousness are dissociable. And in reviewing those studies that purport to show attention in the absence of consciousness, I again and again found that uh, a more natural explanation of the results 
is that there can be orientation in the absence of consciousness. And I define orientation in a change in the mechanisms that allow information to get into the nervous system. Um, Internally, orientation might involve a change in the motor plans to shift one's direction of gaze or one's body to affect what information gets in. So Mm -hmm. orientation is all about what gets into the system. Attention, on the other hand, is really about the stuff that's already in the system. Attention is something that you do to manipulate what stuff in the system can flow forward to work memory. And the two usually work together. So if you're, say, interested in in tracking an object, what you want to do is track it with your eyes, that's orienting, but also make sure that that when that information gets in, that's the stuff you you process, think about, make decisions about. Um, But they can come apart. So given the possibility of dissociation, it's always open uh, to the theorists to, to explain the animal results by saying these creatures are orienting but not attending. Right. And I think when you're dealing with organisms that don't have a tremendous amount of uh, flexibility in their behavior, um, the, the claim that they have working memory that functions the way ours does is somewhat, um, uh, if not dubious at least, would require... <laughs> considerably more uh, exploration and defense. And, and I wasn't convinced the science was, was settled enough to draw any strong conclusions. What I do think, though, is we do find tremendous preservation um, in evolution. So if you just look across phyla, the, the insects uh, that we um, have examined use neurotransmitters that are similar chemically to ones that we find in mammal brains. I mean, it's really tremendous... Uh, preservation across across living things and to that extent even if you do think that there are strong uh correlations between consciousness and specific neural realizers uh the the possibility that we might find consciousness in creatures quite different from us in our world um is i think fairly high and i am convinced that probably every every mammal uh has uh consciousness because i think probably every mammal has a nervous system that's sufficiently similar to ours with respect to the presence of gamma oscillations leading to availability to work memory. Um, when it comes to, you know, shellfish, when it comes to insects, uh, I think that all bets are off at this point with respect to what we, we currently know. Uh, but given continuity, uh, it's a really, really important and interesting area for further exploration. So we're we're running out of time. And speaking of further explanation, um, what's your next project? Well, I uh, I just finished a book uh, draft on on art. So pretty far removed uh, from the consciousness topic. Uh, everything for me uh, is interconnected by an interest in perception, an interest in experience, um, and uh, I'm now in early stages of, of two other projects. One is revisiting my uh, earliest book topic, which is concepts. So I'm, I'm thinking again about the relationship between concepts and perception and writing about that. And the other is a return to moral psychology and thinking a lot about um, not just moral judgment, which has typically been the focus of moral psychology, uh, but the relationship between moral values and the self. And, and there I'm very interested in an idea that morality is fundamentally tribal and identity is fundamentally social in the sense that we develop a sense of who we are by forming affiliations with various moral tribes. 
so far afield from consciousness, though, uh, you know, like everything in, in uh, one's research, uh, these topics tend to, to stay with you. And I certainly am continuing to think about topics in consciousness studies as well. Well, that's great. Um, well, thank you very much for a, for a wonderful interview. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll be in touch for some of your future work, hopefully. Thanks. And likewise, I should say to uh, to listeners, those of you who haven't read uh, your stuff, uh, read it. And there's tremendously rich and interesting uh, uh, work you've done on the relationship between mind and brain that I think really if people read that in their intro courses instead of some of the thought experiment-based classics, we'd have a much more nuanced view of the, of the mind-body relation uh, than, than you, know, you and I were uh, forced to uh, accept while studying philosophy of mind in early days. Well, thank you. So, um, okay. Um, bye. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to my interview with Jesse Prinz. Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York Graduate Center. We've been talking about his new book, The Conscious Brain, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.